When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, NFL fans? Welcome back to another episode of the NFL Whip Around Week 4 in the books. Two hosts are same as always. I'm Jeff Hartman, joined by Coach KT Smith. What's up, Kevin? How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. I just I caught a little bit of what you posted on Twitter of you and Stats. Yep. He was wearing his Victory Monday shirt. And it's is all there, he ever wears. Can we, is there like an equivalent for Steelers fans? Right? Is there a Misery Monday shirt? I don't know what the equivalent is, but. Well, at the Steel Curtain Network shop, we have a Fire Canada shirt. Is that the equivalent? <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be a bestseller by Wednesday. We've we've sold some. Let's just put it that way. We have sold some of those shirts for sure. But uh, Steelers aside, the NFL was in full go, obviously in Week Four, and it was a it was a weird week. I mean, you you saw a lot of offensive ineptitude, not just in Pittsburgh, but. With other AFC North teams in particular, you saw some very questionable coaching decisions. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of that here on the NFL Whip Around. Look, if you want a game-by-game analysis, go back, check out the Fans First Football Show that you referenced, Coach, with myself and Rob Stats Guerrero. That ran on Monday. Today on Tuesday, we like to look at some key topics and storylines surrounding the National Football League as we go into the next week, which is week five. Let's start off the top with the best team in the league. Okay, so who was the best team in the league on Sunday? So let's talk about this week. So who was the best team this week? But then I also want to ask you a follow-up, Coach, which is after four weeks, almost a quarter, I know it's an odd number of 17 games now, but after almost a quarter, like who's the best team in the league right now at this juncture? But let's start with Sunday. Who was the best team in your opinion? For me, it was Buffalo. I just feel as though they almost took that Miami hype train personally. The Bills have been the class of that division the last few years and everybody knows about what Miami did the previous week, the 70 points and the 700 yards and all that. Uh, And they went up to Buffalo and I just thought that the bills were not only prepared from a schematic standpoint, but also from like an emotional standpoint, that stadium was so loud. Sean McDermott said it sounded like a jet engine inside the stadium. Uh, Josh Allen, you know, he's playing great football. He was, he was great. On Sunday, I think it was 21 out of 25. But it was interesting because you, you, you think about Josh Allen and you you picture him launching these bombs all over the field from these ridiculous arm angles and things like that. But he was just kind of like an efficient Josh Allen, throwing short passes. I think of his 25 throws, 23 of them were, were under 20 yards. And uh, he just kind of managed the game. And then they just turned that defense loose on Tua. I mean, Tua got hit. Like, he has not been hit all year long. And they hit him, they sacked him four times, and they hit him a bunch of other times. And you just I, I think it's easy to forget how good Buffalo is. I mean, they're they've now scored 37 points or more in three straight games. I think that was only done once last year in the entire league. So uh when they get rolling, man, they're they're among the best in the league. And I thought they were great yesterday. They were great. And I think that's it's also a really important facet of this matchup that it's a divisional game. 
And so you can have Miami hang up 70 on Denver and you can have Buffalo struggle against the jets divisional game. Like that's their common opponents. They know how to play one another so well. I'd never thought that the Miami dolphins offense would kind of get shut down the way that they did. But at the same time, the Buffalo bills know this Miami offense. They're not going to be, it's not going to be a shock to them. They're, they're going to kind of understand where to go and how to handle it. You mentioned the pressure they put on Tua was a great game. I do question though, and coach, I'll give you get, get your take on this. The one thing about Josh Allen that seems to be a little amiss at times is his consistency. He'll have games like the one we just saw on Sunday, where at one point he had more touchdowns than he had incompletions. And then he'll have games, look at week one, where he's turning the ball over at a ridiculous clip. Is that just who Josh Allen is? Or is this going to be kind of the new trend in having a more consistent product? I think that's who he's always been. When he came out of college, that gunslinger reputation, a lot of people talked about him like a, a young Ben Roethlisberger. And his rookie year, was I don't want to say a disaster, but he really struggled with with managing the football and his completion percentage was low and he threw a bunch of interceptions. And he's obviously gotten way better at that as he goes, but he lapses back into that at times. I think they really managed the game plan yesterday to uh, try to try to be ball control, keep the ball away from Miami. Uh, they didn't allow Allen to take a ton of shots down the field. And again, he's boomer bust when he does that. He can look spectacular. When he throws a, a deep ball, it's as pretty as anything you see in the league. But um, he can also make some bad decisions, like you said. So, so they really, I think, catered the game plan yesterday to a more conservative approach, and they still put up 48 points. So I think that Buffalo is scary when Allen is probably doing a little bit less. And, and uh, you know, they're scary when he's doing more, but they can also be their own worst enemy in those situations too. So Buffalo is going to be a front runner in the AFC. We knew this heading into the season, but I want to ask you the follow-up that I mentioned before we even got to this topic, which is after four weeks, who's the best team in the league right now? And we a lot can change. I understand that. But four weeks is a, a little bit more of a sample size. What are your thoughts in terms of the NFL's best team after this stretch of games? Yeah, for me, it's the 49ers. I just think they're the most complete team. I just think what they do up front on both sides of the ball combined with uh, their coaching staff uh, you know, the diversity they have on offense, just with the, the way that they can move guys around McCaffrey and Kittle and, uh, and Samuel and those guys, they just, they can beat you in a bunch of different ways and they don't always have to play their a game to win because that's when you can, when you can fall back on running the football with a dominant uh, line on both sides of the ball, stopping the run on defense, running it on offense. It takes away a lot of, a lot of pressure on your quarterback so for me, I, I just don't feel right now as though there's a team in the league that's more complete than San Francisco. It's it's hard to argue against that. It's hard to find a team, like you said, like that just seems like they're clicking on all cylinders. And then you look at like Christian McCaffrey, well, he's just doing Christian McCaffrey things. Brock Purdy is just seems like he's the perfect quarterback for that system. Tough to disagree. Let's talk about a team that had a ton of expectations placed on it heading into 2023. Maybe you can point to the unfortunate calf injury to Joe Burrow. Obviously, we're talking about the Cincinnati Bengals. Topic number two in this whip around is what is wrong with the Bengals? They lose. They only put up three points. Interesting stat that Rob talked about on Monday's show uh, is that they are the only team, I think, in the NFL that has not scored a first half touchdown yet this year. I mean, think about that. Not just first quarter, not just opening drive. 
an entire half of football, they have not put up a touchdown. What is wrong with the Bengals, coach, in your opinion? They have a, uh, a there's some mind boggling stats associated with that offense right now. And I know Rob and Dave Schofield, they're the big stats guys. Yeah. Uh, but, but when you, when you look at some of them, like three, three total touchdowns on offense this year by the Bengals. And I mean, they're averaging the lowest points per drive of any team in the league. They're averaging the lowest points per drive through four games of any team since, since 2019. And that's, that's incredible. I think that the big thing uh, is twofold. One, obviously Burrow's injury has, has limited his mobility. And one of the things that makes him so effective is just his ability to find space in the pocket. He's not, not a runner per se, but he's really good at being able to sort of slide and move within the pocket and, and get to some open seams where he, he gets a clean sight line down the field and then, then make plays. And calf injuries are tough because like they, they really limit your ability to push off. And when you're a quarterback in the pocket and you're trying to sort of slide and move into those open spaces, you need to be sudden. And with a calf injury and, and not having that explosiveness, it really takes that away from Burrow. And then defenses have responded in the <laughs> in really the sort of survival of the fittest way that they do by blitzing the heck out of them. Right? Yeah. And Joe Burrow's completion percentage against the blitz has really declined. It was uh, it was sixty nine percent two years ago, and last year it was fifty nine percent. And this year against the blitz, he's only completing fifty one percent of his passes. And so by heating up Burrow uh, and you know trying to confine him to the pocket and understanding he can't move real well. They've just taken away the explosive element in, in that offense. Let's also talk about the offensive line. You mentioned about the blitzing schemes, but I mean, this was supposed to be a, a group that got better this past offseason. You know, the, the banner signing was the big signing was Orlando Brown Jr. being added. It They're not keeping the pass rush off of Joe Burrow and they're not making his life any easier. I mean, when you think about it, their offense has really become restricted to shotgun passes He's got to make his first read, second read, and the ball's got to be out. Well, a lot of that is also not just because the calf injury, but the offensive line coach. Is a lot of this also the guys up front not doing their jobs to keep him upright? Yeah, yeah. and when he gets that pressure in his face, he doesn't get comfortable. It doesn't let the routes develop down the field. He's he's two for 22 on the season on passes that travel more than 20 yards in the air. That's awful. And that tells you that uh, either the calf injury is limiting his ability to push off and therefore his accuracy, or with all that pressure in his face, he's just having to throw the football under duress and before routes develop. And then you flip it over and you look at like the defense. I mean, they're not without their own blame. I mean, they've given up 35 explosive plays. And that's tied with Denver for the most in the league. I think 30 of Denver's explosive plays were against the Dolphins two, you know, two weeks ago. Yeah. So it's like uh, the defense has given up home runs. And the offense can't create those explosive plays. And you put those two things together, that's a recipe for disaster. Well, they let both of their starting safeties from a year ago walk in free agency and Jesse Bates and Von Bell. Like That's going to have an impact. But let me, before we leave this topic, I want to ask you a, a simple question. I, we don't know the extent of the injury. It's not a ruptured Achilles tendon or anything because he wouldn't be able to play at all. That's obviously what Aaron Rodgers is dealing with as he recovers from his injury. We're talking about a calf injury, and I'm not going to downplay that. But, Coach, can we honestly say that when you bring up some of these statistics for Joe Burrow, that all of it could be on a calf injury? Like, I'm sorry. Like, I grew up playing sports where throwing was was obviously a necessity. And I, I can't say that all, everything is going to be thrown out of whack. Maybe not, maybe not practicing and playing in the preseason. Yes, I could understand attributing to that. But at some point, like, you just got to make the plays, right? Or am I just out of left field here? 
No, I I think you see a little bit with Cincinnati right now what you see with you, know, you and I as Steelers fans. We watch their offense. Teams are not afraid of the Steelers beating them down the field in the passing game. And so they get more aggressive and they tighten things up. And I think you're seeing some of that in Cincinnati. As to why that is, that's hard to hard to know. I mean, Jamar yeah. Chase and that receiving group in Cincinnati, man, they should be able to worry some defensive coordinators that, man, if I press those guys, we're going to get beat over the top. But that's just not the case right now. So the Bengals obviously uh, have not been able to figure out an answer to what defensive coordinators are throwing at them. And now now it's in their court, man. They got to, it becomes sort of a scheme uh, battle. You have to figure out now what your counter move is and and they just don't know just yet. Definitely going to be interesting to see if the Bengals can bounce back. They are one and three right now. They are in the bottom of the AFC North, which was not a big day for the AFC North, but we're not going to get into that. So let's, uh, let's talk about the next, topic here on the whip round and that is our favorite coach to criticize and to talk about and that is the la chargers brandon staley he does it again and i will say this at least he sticks to his guns yeah (laughs) i i gotta be honest like when he goes for it on fourth and one at a critical moment in the fourth quarter against a division rival i i have i have to feel like his players knew like he's gonna go for it like they they would probably be stunned if he sent the punt team on but he goes for it and he fails game on the line we've seen this from brandon staley before what are your thoughts on his decision making he is he's not gonna deviate you're right i mean that man's married to his metrics and uh (laughs) i feel as though the defense can look at that in two different ways right they they can look at that as like what is this guy doing right the positions he's putting us in this is two weeks in a row now with the game on the line and the chargers ahead by uh you know a touchdown or less than a touchdown that uh, he's going for in, in his own territory and they failed on, on both situations, but both times the defense has responded. They've gotten interceptions uh, at the goal line or in the end zone on both drives with the, with the opponent's offense inside the 10 yard line. So they can look at that and, and just be like frustrated and say, oh, what's this guy doing to us? Or, and I'm going to guess that this is more so the case, they, that he's, he's, essentially made his intentions clear. They know what to expect. And that when they fail in those situations, the defense simply goes onto the field and says, all right, you know, now it's on us next play. Yeah. I think we mentioned this a little bit last week, but like, I, I don't have any problem with it. If, if as a head coach or an offense coordinator that the defense knows that, Hey, we might put you in a tough spot, but we're going to do so within the framework of we, what we think is best to win the football game. And if we fail, then, then it's on you. And if the defense can rally to that, then so be it, right? And the guy's won two games, and he's won two games in in his own way. So we can criticize if we want, but it's worked out for him. You talk about the messages that are being sent to your players. I I firmly believe in that in my time as a head coach. I'm sure you do as well. And that goes all the way up to the professional ranks. Let's talk about another coaching decision and what that communication, what what is he saying to his players? And that's Ron Rivera of the Washington Commanders. Okay, so the way that that game ended against the Philadelphia Eagles, Sam Howell drives the team down the field. It's a remarkable play. Dotson scores. You are a two-point conversion away from winning, or you kick the extra point, you go to overtime. I'm sorry, but when you you just drove down the field and you almost have this miraculous play, no one's giving you a chance in this game anyways. What is the message being sent to the offense that I don't trust you from a play from the two-yard line to win it 
Instead, we're going to kick an extra point, hope that we win the toss or that we can stop the Eagles, get the ball back, drive down the field, all those other things that would have to happen. What is the message sent to the, the offense when Ron Rivera holds up the singular finger and says, we're just going to kick the extra point? I mean, my, my personal philosophy is that when you're the underdog and you're on the road and you get to a situation like that, you go for two because you have the momentum. Uh, the Eagles were clearly stunned. I mean, they literally scored, Washington yeah. literally scored the touchdown to tie the game or, you know, put them down by one on the last play of regulation. And you've got them back on their heels. And if you've got a, if you got a two point play, you like, then I think that that's, you know, you, you go for it now, who knows, man. I mean, sometimes, so, so most teams will have a, a script of two point plays that they want to carry into a game. And it's not extensive because how many are you going to really run? They might have three two point plays that they really like, but you might run those one or two of those earlier in the game. Like if you don't see yourself needing all three of them, you might say, Hey, hey we got a fourth and one here and we're going to run a two point play because they're designed for those situations. So it's possible that Ron Rivera looked at his, at his call sheet and Maybe they didn't like any of the two-point plays that they that they had on there in that situation. Maybe they'd already run them. There's a lot of variables that we don't know. But as a rule, I really think that that's a scenario where you go for it because Philly's the better team. And the longer you play, and, and they're at home, and the longer you play, the more it favors the Eagles. You've got the momentum. You just scored. The Eagles are on their heels. Let's try to end the game right now. That's my thought too. And some people will say, and I said this on my Monday show with Rob, some people will say it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario. I don't agree with that. Not when you're on the road, not when no one's giving you a shot, not when you're going against a team that was the NFC representative in the Super Bowl last year. And you, like you said, you have them on their heels. If there's a time where most fans are going to say, if you go for it and don't make it, I totally get why you went for it. And they're not going to second. They're, there's always going to be Monday morning quarterbacks. Let's get that out of the way. But still, the vast majority of the fan base is going to support the decision to go for the win and not hope all those other things happen. I just think when it comes to the message, the messaging that you brought up when Brandon Staley, like, look, the defense, I might put you in a bad situation. The message to Sam Howe and that offense is, I don't trust you to get two yards to win the game after you just drove down the field against the NFC champions last year to almost to put us even in this position. Just, it just doesn't sit well with me, coach. I guarantee if he had turned around and polled his team, they would have wanted to go for two. I remember a game we played in college. We, we were on the road against the number three ranked team in the country. And the, you know, I mean, it's division three football, but they were still, you know, they're a big powerhouse team. And, uh, and we were down 28, 14 in the fourth quarter. And we came back and scored with nine seconds left to make it 28, 27. And our coach called timeout. And he gathered the whole team, not just the offense. He gathered the whole team on the sideline. And he and he said, you know, what are we doing here? What do you guys want to do? And like unanimously, everybody said, go, let's go for two. And we didn't get it. <laughs> we didn't get it. And then we had an eight-hour <laughs> bus ride home and we lost 28-27. But there wasn't a single disappointed kid on that bus. Everybody on that bus understood, you know, like, man, let's let's, let's we're here to let's win the game, man. Let's, let's win the game right now. So I would I would think, yes, that there'd be some guys on the offense in Washington who were disappointed yesterday. I'd rather go down swinging. I've always said that I'd rather go down swinging than hope that the coin toss and everything else goes your way. Try to dictate the game, but Hey, Hey, everyone has their own philosophies for someone that has the, the moniker riverboat Ron. 
He sure didn't roll the dice. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to our next topic. And it is one, a guy that's been doing it really at a high level for a really long time. Christian McCaffrey, like this guy is just, everyone says like, Oh, you can't draft a running back in the first round. You shouldn't draft a running back in the first round because you have all these other examples of second, third, fourth, or even later, sometimes even undrafted players who are making really good impacts on their team. But then there's a Christian McCaffrey who was a first round pick and said, well, if you get that guy, you're not going to complain about spending a first round pick is Christian McCaffrey, in your opinion, good enough to be a league MVP or at least in that consideration after four weeks. Absolutely. I, I saw somebody uh, on TV yesterday or Sunday talking about how he can't be the MVP because he's a running back, that it's a quarterback league and that the, the MVP is a quarterback award. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. The impact he's made on San Francisco since he arrived. They, now, they were a good team before he got there. But since he's gotten there, they've been an elite team. They, they've they gone 14 and two. And the two games that they lost were one was his very first game there against the Chiefs. And then the other one was the NFC Championship when they didn't have a quarterback, when they lost both their quarterback. He ended up playing some quarterback in that game. Yeah. So it's hard to really fault them for either one of those. Otherwise, they've won 14 straight regular season games, uh, and and they've been fairly dominant in doing it. And he's kind of the catalyst. I mean, since he's gotten there, they've been first in overall success rate on offense. They've been second in offensive EPA, which I think is a really good statistic. I mean, I'm not a huge stats guy, but I think that's a really good statistic. Uh, I mean, he leads all running backs uh, in the NFL and explosive runs over that time. I mean, it just there's just there's a different team with him. And I think if they go on to to, you know, win the NFC and he continues to play at this level, how do you not put him in the top two or three guys in that conversation? Do you think in today's modern era of NFL that a non quarterback has any prayer though of winning? Like he'll get, he would get votes if he keeps up this trend. But do you think, I mean, it seems like it's been eons ago since like Adrian Peterson, I believe was an MVP at one point. Do you think that's still even a possibility, even though the numbers that you just said are definitely worthy of being a, the most valuable player for their team? MVP is still a sports writer's vote, right? Yes. Okay. Well then no. <laughs> I don't think he has any chance because I think sports writers love quarterbacks. Love it's the most obvious thing. It's the thing that like is the easiest to talk about because everybody's got an opinion on the quarterback and it's, you know, the, the running back position uh, is, is being devalued. And a guy like McCaffrey, his value doesn't always show up in the most obvious way. Like you say, Oh, well, how many yards rushing did he have? Oh, he had 86 yards rushing. Well, that's a good day, but that's not an MVP day. But then you look at all these other things that he did. Or then you look at the really nuanced stuff. Like, what's a defense have to do to account for Christian McCaffrey that makes life easier for other guys? I mean, you really have to, given the, all the ways that, that, that San Francisco uses him, you have to have a very distinct game plan for him in your offense. That's now going to allow the 49ers to operate well elsewhere. So, I think his impact isn't isn't as obvious and therefore it makes him probably less likely to get that vote. Which is a shame because he's having a hell of a season. He's a hell of a player. Uh, he had four touchdowns in the game yesterday or on Sunday in week four, just dominant. And it's crazy what San Francisco, we talked about them already being the best team after four weeks. It's crazy how they're doing it, but just a handful of guys. It's him, Brandon Ayuk. 
I want to say that Rob said on the show yesterday that the 49ers only had George Kittle and Debo Samuel had one touch in that game combined and they still put up over 30 points and it's just crazy. It's a great scheme. Christian McCaffrey's the perfect back for that scheme. I can't believe we're going to talk about this next thing, but we are because why the <laughs> hell not? I mean, yes, here on. we are the NFL whip around two sports guys that love the game. And we're going to be talking about Taylor Swift. Good Lord. Okay. You wanted to talk about this coach. Let's talk I about did. it. Is Taylor, is Taylor Swift good for the NFL? We, she's been all over the, all over social media, not her, but just pictures and the talking points and, she was in Kansas City last week. She was in New York to watch the Chiefs play the Jets. What are your thoughts on old Tay-Tay? Uh, you probably saw some of the statistics, right? After that game two weeks ago in Kansas City, Travis Kelsey's jersey, jersey sales went up 400%. Yeah. The Chiefs got 300,000 new Instagram followers. That I mean, that is that is a massive impact. And yeah. my cousin, who knows nothing about football, she knows nothing about football. She's 25 years old and she's never paid attention to a, a sport in her life. She responded. She actually sent me her response. Somebody put on Twitter a picture of the Philadelphia Eagles offense. And it was a photograph, a still photograph shot from behind the Eagles. And you saw the backs of center Jason Kelsey, quarterback Jalen Hurts and running back DeAndre Swift. And, it, and they just highlighted the names and it says Kelsey Hurts Swift. And that was it. They left it alone and they just posted it on there. And there was like 3000 comments. And my cousin commented, he better not hurt Taylor Swift. If he hurts Taylor Swift, you know, and it was like, she was going off. And it's, I mean, the NFL has got to be loving this man because eat, whether this is like a couple week phenomenon or whatever happens, they're drawing in a entirely new audience. Uh, and, and the NFL has already done an amazing job of marketing itself in so many ways to really like non-football fans, whether it's the Super Bowl or fantasy football, which I know lots of people who aren't real, like real football fans play it because it's yeah. interesting. The, the anime thing that they did, the Toy Story thing that they did with the, the London game on Sunday, you know, that probably drew in lots of people just for the curiosity of it all. So I think I would think that the league sees this as a great opportunity to reach an entirely new audience, even if it's only temporary. And some of those people, they may convert into real football fans. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. The Swifties are crazy. And uh, you know, now all of a sudden Travis Kelsey's all over the place. He's on my TV with insurance commercials and he's doing commercials for big pharma. And he's on for with uh, Patrick Mahomes on state farms. It's like, man, this is insane. How, these had to be done well before the, all this stuff came out, but still it's just like the, these two entities are just completely skyrocketing North. Uh, really weird. I, I don't have much of a thought on this, to be honest with you. Of course, the NFL is going to try to capitalize on it. I don't blame them for trying to capitalize on it. Anytime you can bring in a new demographic uh, to your product and hope that a few stick around, even if it doesn't last. Yeah. You're going to try to do that. I don't fault the NFL at all for Sunday night football, having a camera that's just fixated on Taylor Swift. So anytime they want to go to the box, like there's a camera, like you're just staying there. I get it. I don't necessarily, I, I don't like the fact that the NFL is trying to do all this stuff, but it is what it is. Like the toy story game. Uh, I'm just not a fan of that. The slime time crap that they do on Nickelodeon. Like when I was a kid, a coach it was probably even worse for you. 
I, there was none of that. Like I was intrigued by the physicality of the game. I was intrigued because my dad loved watching football and I used to love watching NFL primetime with Chris Berman and TJ as they did all the nicknames and the monikers and Chris Berman was in his prime with the whoop and all that stuff. That's what drew me to the game. I didn't need a, a you know, a first down chains that were a slinky dog from toy story to get me interested in the game of football. I, I don't know. Like I, I get why the NFL is doing it. I understand it, but to me, I guess I'm, I'm asking what is wrong with a product that shouldn't be enticing for the young adults anyways. That's my only beef with them. It's a, it's a different world, man. Young it people is. have so many forms of entertainment, so many things to keep them amused that the NFL has to try to sort of compete with things that you and I, you know, we didn't, I mean, man, you know how it was. I, I'm older than you. When I was, when I was growing up, I, we had like 12 channels, 13 channels before yeah. cable TV hit when I was a little bit older and whatever game they were showing, that was the game. And you didn't have any alternatives. There was no Sunday ticket. There was no you know, opportunity to see anything else. And and you either liked it or you didn't. Um, and most people did because I think the culture was also a little bit different too. But things have changed for sure. And the demographics are different. And I just think about my students who I teach right there. There are some diehard football fans in there. But I can't really bring up the game of football and, and, and hey, everybody watch the Eagles game on Sunday. Uh, and you'd have, you know, 20 years ago when I was teaching, 90% of the class would say yes. Today, that might be 25, 30% less. It doesn't mean football's in decline. It just means they're doing stuff. I also think it's interesting because, you know, I've, had, I've got years of, ex- of teaching experience as well with the young demographic. And I would always see kids at the beginning of the school year, they come walking in and I obviously live in Maryland. So you, they're wearing a Ravens Jersey and I'd always strike up a conversation. Oh, you're a Ravens fan. Yeah. Yeah. I love the Ravens. Blah, blah, blah. Well, the next time they come in and this has actually happened, I swear, I kid you not. They're wearing a TJ Watt Jersey. I'm like, well, what the hell are you doing? Like, you can't do that. Like you're wearing a Ravens Jersey. The next day you're wearing a TJ Watt. That, that is like oil and water. Those two do not mix. What are we doing? What are we well, I don't know. And then they, then the next day, Jamar Chase jersey. He's on my fantasy team. I'm like, do you like a team or not? <laughs> That's bad parenting right there. I that is- that. <laughs> hey, you let your kid be an Alliance fan. I don't want to hear it. So <laughs> <laughs> That's a smart move right now, man. We're the right stupid now, yeah. ones rooting for the Steelers. Come on. <laughs> Great point. Point taken. But no, it's it's definitely a different dynamic with fantasy football at a young age. Kids don't have the loyalty to a team as much as they do players. They like individual players. They'll support those players. And yeah, Travis Kelsey's going to have a lot of fans now because he is somehow romantically involved with Taylor Swift. I, it's just weird, but at the same time, I, I guess whatever. That's fine. Okay. Let's, <laughs> let, let's talk about the last thing, the, the player profile, which we always highlight. Obviously, we've had Brandon Ayuk. Uh, we've had other players that have played great last night, Sunday night football or Sunday night. Uh, Pacheco, the running back from Kansas City, just went off. What are your thoughts on him for your player profile, Coach? Yeah, you know, I just – I really – I wanted to talk about him just because of a personal connection and uh, – yeah, I go back go back to 2014. Our high school team is we're playing a game at home uh, on a miserable night in early November uh, at the Jersey Shore, which is just cold and windy and wet. And we're playing Vineland High School, which uh, was a, a nearby school, and it's a slugfest. And 
it's like a we're winning. I think I think we're winning like twelve to seven in the early, late in the fourth quarter. Is about five minutes to go in the game, and their freshman quarterback. Uh, they have they have a, they have a running back that they've been playing. And he was a freshman, and they they bump him over to quarterback. They get the ball on their own like twenty yard line, about five minutes left, and they go into a wildcat. And now the now the freshman running back is playing quarterback, and all they're doing is running sweeping power. They're snapping him the ball, and he's either running up the middle behind a pulling guard, or he's running around the end behind two pulling guards. And and we can't stop it. We know exactly what they're doing, and this kid is running. Like it's his reason to be on this earth. He is running as hard as he can. He is relentless. He's breaking tackles. He's a freshman and he's about five foot 10 and about 165, 170 pounds. And we just can't stop this kid, man. And they run, they go sweep power, sweep power, sweep power all the way down the field. And they score a touchdown with about 30 seconds left. And they beat us 13 to 12. And that, and that freshman was Isaiah Pacheco. And I just remember like after the game, shaking hands with the kid and saying, you know, that was a, he- a heck of an effort on your part. And he was no bigger than me, man. He was smaller than me. Um, and then, you know, I learned a little bit of his story. We have friends who live in Vineland and I mean, really, really tough life growing up, lost his brother, lost his sister, uh, you know, grew up in a, a gang area, had an awful lot to overcome. And, you know, it's those stories, right? You, you, you get to see like these young men, uh, who who overcome these these situations? You're just happy if they make it out of that environment. And Pacheco winds up going to Rutgers. No football, you know, it's not not a football factory. Uh, and you know, he's, you're you're thrilled for the guy because you think, hey, he made it to D1 football, but he, you know, he's not going to really go any further than that. Uh, and then he gets drafted in the seventh round, and you think, oh, that's awesome, man. He got drafted in the seventh round. Maybe maybe he'll catch on with the team. And not only does he catch on with the team, but he becomes the starting running back for a Super Bowl champ. And then Sunday night in prime time has 158 total yards. And, and just like, you just, you just say to yourself, man, like these are the, these are the feel good stories that you're just so happy to know a little bit of the backstory uh, and be able to just celebrate the, uh, the hard work and the accomplishments of, of young men like him. So anyway, I want to give him a shout out because I just feel as though from what, from where he's come, what he's overcome, what I saw of him personally and who he is today, you know, that young man is doing fabulously for himself. It's those stories, which are so phenomenal, about hard work, dedication, stick to whatever you want to call it, that should be highlighted by the league. And instead, we're inundated with Toy Story and Taylor Swift. So there you go. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah. I would much rather hear about his story and how he overcame such glaring odds. But that's just me. Maybe I'm a little old school. I don't know. But that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that, Coach. Hey, before we wrap up, what's coming up on the call sheet? Why don't you let the listeners know? Well, we're going to expand a little bit on Brandon Staley. Uh, we talked a little bit about him today, but but we're going to use him as a kind of a, a jumping off point for a broader conversation about uh, how metrics and statistics are really driving a lot of coaching decisions in the league today. I mean, more and more teams are really starting to game plan and make in-game decisions around the numbers, which is an interesting thing, uh, I think, because there's two ways really to look at a call on a game. And one is sort of your feel and the other is, is the data. And we're seeing a new generation of coaches who are gravitating more towards the latter there. Uh, and then obviously we'll, we'll continue just, just to talk about the league. There's some fascinating stuff going on right now. The separation in quarterback play, the high end quarterback play is as good as the, I think we've seen it in a long, long time. And the low end quarterback play is pretty bad. So it's an interesting separation yeah. there. So those will be our main topics. 
Awesome. Let everyone know where they can find you on Twitter. Yeah, KT Smith FFSN. And, um, you know, that's uh, that's the call sheet runs on Wednesdays. And uh, I've been putting up some stuff on Twitter lately, just kind of looking at some coaching decisions and some schemes. So follow me yeah. if you get a chance. Fantastic stuff. You can also hear him on the Steel Curtain Network, which is where you can also hear me. Anywhere you get your podcast, search Steelers or Steel Curtain Network, you'll find our feed covering the Pittsburgh Steelers. Make sure you check out all of our shows on the FFSN NFL feed. If you want to follow me for some odd reason, you can do so on Twitter at Jay Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N underscore P-I-T. Coach, thanks for your time. We'll talk to you next week. Take it easy. Yes, sir.